This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. From 1947 to 1991, Germany was divided into two blocks, the Soviet-run Eastern Bloc and the more capitalistic Western Bloc. In the East, democracy was all but obliterated, with heavy restrictions placed on what media and political ideologies were allowed. The press was an extension of the state, serving as a propaganda machine for the Communist Party. Anyone who spoke out against those in power were silenced. For people living in the Eastern Bloc, Times were dark, which is why so many tried to flee. Unfortunately, the border between East and West Germany was almost impenetrable. Not only were armed guards stationed along the various walls and fences separating the two sides, but there were all manner of deterrents waiting for anyone who dared to try to climb over. Barbed wire was a common sight, as were watchtowers, where guards would keep an eye on activity and shine searchlights on anyone they thought trying to cross. 10,000 people attempted to escape the Eastern Bloc. Nearly a thousand of them died trying. But two families tried to get out in the 1970s, and they did it in the most unique and dangerous way possible. The plan was hatched by two men, electrician Peter Strelzik and Gunter Wetzel, who worked as a bricklayer. They had talked many times over the years about how they wanted to escape the Eastern Bloc, concocting various schemes to get past the border. They were mental exercises more than true actual plans, the way two people might talk about committing the perfect crime for fun. But it wasn't until March of 1978 when true inspiration hit. Gunter's sister-in-law had moved out of East Germany in the late 50s but had come back to see family. She'd brought with her a magazine featuring an article about a yearly festival held in the southwestern United States. The celebration centered around a certain mode of transportation, and it gave the bricklayer an idea. He showed his friend the article, and the two men agreed. That was how they were getting out. Unfortunately, though they were good with their hands, the men had never built such a device before. They traveled to their town's library for more information, studying whatever books were available on the subject. They determined that they would need 3,000 square feet of fabric, an amount that would have set off alarm bells within the state. To avoid trouble, they went to a store 30 miles away and told the clerk they had started a camping club. The fabric was to make tents, and apparently that was enough. Gunter took on the duty of stitching all the fabric together, spending two weeks in his bedroom behind his mother's sewing machine. Meanwhile, Peter was tasked with creating a power source and something to carry everyone in. He took two bottles of liquid propane and connected them with hoses that fed to a nozzle of his own design. Then he welded a five-foot square metal plate to a few support beams, which was enough to hold a family of four. When they put their respective projects together, 
it was clear that Peter and Gunter had created something cool. Well, hot, actually. A hot air balloon. They tested the balloon in April of 1978, driving out to an open clearing far from the watchful eyes of the state. They tried to fill the balloon with hot air by igniting the liquid propane, but it refused to inflate. The fabric was too porous to hold the gas inside. Sealing it didn't work, either. So they returned home, where they incinerated the balloon to eliminate the evidence before getting back to work on version 2.0. After testing several kinds of waterproof and non-porous fabrics, they settled on an inexpensive form of synthetic taffeta. This time, they traveled to a different store and claimed that they were part of a sailing club, using the taffeta to make sails for boats. And once again, no one saw any issue with selling thousands of feet of fabric to two random guys off the street. One week later, the second balloon was ready for testing. Peter and Gunter turned to the field that night and hooked their taffeta creation to the gondola Peter had put together. Everything worked as they had hoped. The fire filled the fabric with gas, lifting the whole contraption off the ground. With a little more tinkering to make sure the fuel didn't run out too quickly, the men were ready to make their great escape. The time finally came on the night of July 3, 1979. Peter gathered his wife and two sons and set up in an abandoned field. The balloon carried them high into the air to an altitude of nearly 7,000 feet. Freedom was only a few hundred feet away. Without warning, though, a gust of wind pushed the family into a cloud. The water vapor weighed the taffeta down, bringing the balloon back to Earth just shy of the border. The Strelziks abandoned the downed craft and made their way on foot back home, which was over 10 miles away. The authorities found the homemade hot air balloon a few hours later, and it was clear that if Peter and Gunter were going to make it out alive, they had to act fast. They bought up small bundles of taffeta from all over East Germany to throw investigators off the trail and fabricated a new balloon that was twice as large as the original. The new gondola was also constructed as well, one that could support the weight of more fuel and two families. They completed the new balloon just over a month later, and on September 15th, they took the only chance that they would get to put it to use. Both families left their homes and belongings behind. They drove to the launch site and inflated the balloon just after 1.30 in the morning. As it lifted into the air, the gondola tipped to one side and the burners set the fabric on fire. One of the men had brought a fire extinguisher to quickly put out the flame, but the problems only compounded from there. Next, the fabric ripped, and the hot air began to leak out, while a strong wind kept blowing out the burners, which had to be relit. It seemed like their escape plan was destined to fail. And then, 10 minutes after takeoff, the balloon finally reached an altitude of 6,600 feet. It was cold up there, very cold, with temperatures dropping to about 17 degrees Fahrenheit. As they floated toward the border, huddling for warmth, Authorities below realized something was going on and turned on spotlights to try and catch them. Gunter, refusing to give up, cranked up the heat. The balloon soared upward another 1,400 feet, well out of range of the lights. They only had enough fuel for a short trip. The balloon descended rapidly and came down hard on the ground half an hour after they'd taken off. Gunter even broke his leg on impact. By the time all was said and done, Peter and Gunter's homemade balloon had traveled a whopping 15 and a half miles. Shortly after landing, a police car pulled up to the crash site and found Peter and Gunter standing in the road. One of the men asked the officers, Are we in the West? They were. The balloon had taken them across the border, out of the Eastern Bloc, and into West Germany. 
After word got out about their daring escape, East Germany placed drastic limitations on how much fabric could be purchased by individuals, and anyone who wanted to buy propane had to register at first. But the Strelzics and the Wetzels didn't have to worry about that anymore. They had beaten the odds, risked everything for life and liberty by traveling up, up, and away in their beautiful hot air balloon. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon. Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you, something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him, style and comfort for all, even big and tall, plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Thomas Edison is known today as a great inventor. From the light bulb to the phonograph, there's no doubt that Edison's work has made an indelible impression on the world as a whole. However, for all the good he did, there was also plenty that he accomplished that was questionable. Sometimes it even delved into illegal and immoral territory. For example, he once drafted a PR campaign to prove that Nikola Tesla's new AC current was unsafe compared to his own DC current. To do this, he electrocuted several animals using AC power, including a five-ton circus elephant known as Topsy. Edison was also greedy. One of his first inventions, an electric voting machine, 
was meant to make the act of voting faster and more efficient. At the time, many votes were often cast orally, with voters calling out yay or nay to mark their choice. Unfortunately, no state or local government wanted to use Edison's machine because it was just too fast. It would keep politicians from campaigning between each vote. So Edison decided to use his inventing prowess for only two reasons. An invention had to serve a purpose, and it had to make him money. One of his most successful endeavors was the Kintograph, built in 1890. It was an evolution of what Leland Stratford had created in 1877, where he lined up 24 still cameras along a racetrack and outfitted each of them with a tripwire. Stanford then had a horse run around the track, with each tripped wire triggering a camera's shutter. When the photos were arranged in sequence, it looked like the horse was running. Edison's creation, however, used a newer kind of film made of celluloid, a flammable type of plastic. To better demonstrate the superiority of the Kintograph, he built a movie studio near his lab, which he called the Black Maria. It was aptly named, looking like a big black cabin in the middle of West Orange, New Jersey. What made it special was its ingenious way of allowing Edison to film practically all day long. The Black Maria sat on wheels that rotated by 15 degrees every hour. This allowed Edison to capture as much sunlight as possible throughout the day. To let in even more light, he would often open the retractable roof. Edison owned three studios across New Jersey and New York, cornering the East Coast moving picture market that he helped create. Of course, with success came competition, and Edison made sure that he nipped that in the bud before it ever got out of hand. He joined forces with several other motion picture patent holders, including Eastman Kodak, and formed the Motion Picture Patents Company, or MPPC. The MPPC owned so many industry-specific patents that any independent studio caught trying to make a movie without permission would find themselves on the receiving end of a lawsuit. Sometimes local mobsters were brought in to let the directors know who was in charge. One studio bore the brunt of nearly 300 lawsuits all by itself. It seemed that nobody could make inroads in what was becoming a lucrative industry. So independent artists started looking elsewhere to make their movies. One such place ended up becoming the perfect location for their new operation. It was warm all year, had dependable weather, and its court system was far more forgiving towards small business owners than Edison's trust of patent holders. Around 1908, five years after the town was incorporated, the first studios began moving to this oasis of entertainment. And as they started making movies again, the lawsuits quickly followed. It wasn't until seven years later when things finally changed. A civil suit was filed against the Motion Picture Patents Company, and the courts found that Edison's trust was in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. The MPPC could no longer use its collection of patents to stop competition or end another filmmaker's business. Edison had lost his monopoly on making movies, which allowed other studios to soar to new heights. The inventor closed down his studio shortly after the ruling, but he shouldn't have been too discouraged. After all, if it wasn't for Thomas Edison's greed, those competing film studios would never have moved west to a sleepy little hamlet in the middle of Los Angeles, California. The Wizard of Menlo Park accidentally invented one of the longest-lasting and most successful industries in history. Hollywood. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. 
I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.